Thanks for reading. Um, Matt and I had probably been married for about three years uh, when we were leaving Bible study one night uh, at our old church um, and one of our friends at the Bible study was explaining to Matt that he was expecting to go to bed, uh, lie in bed for a little bit, probably toss and turn for a little while, realise that he couldn't get to sleep and then get up and um, go and watch TV. And Matt said to him, oh yeah, I do that all the time too. So we've been married for three years. And I said, no, you don't. You don't get up and watch TV. What are you talking about? And he's like, Ella, I get up quite often and watch TV. Um, as somebody who sleeps very soundly, I had thought that my husband also slept very soundly, that we went to bed, put our head on the pillow, and we were out like a light. But apparently, that was not the case. Um, and I've realised that being a sound sleeper comes with some benefits, right? So even just recently on the mission trip that we went on, uh, we had some fairly significant snorers in our midst. Um, I slept through it. And we had dogs barking. I slept through it. Um, I can sleep pretty well through the night. It takes a lot to wake me up. But my husband, on the other hand, apparently not quite the case. Um, but the other thing that I've realised is that while there are these benefits uh, for being a sound sleeper, um, there's also some significant uh, negative things to it. Uh, one of those occasions where I realised this was when a smoke detector was going off in our house. Uh, the smoke detector did not wake me up, but my husband, dragging a chair down the hallway to stand on, turning on all the lights, banging on the ceiling and trying to turn the smoke detector off was what woke me up. I realised if there was ever a fire, uh, I could be in a fair bit of trouble. The passage that we're looking at tonight is a little bit like an alarm. The alert is sounding over and over and over, and Peter is concerned for those who he is writing to that they don't miss the alarm. The lights are turned on, and he is making every noise possible so that they would wake up. Tonight, we all need this same wake-up call because the warning that he was writing to, his, uh, to these readers um, is the same warning that we need today. There's no two ways about it. Peter, in this passage, gets pretty shouty. But I think that this only highlights the gravity of the issue which he is addressing. There are people who will pervert the gospel in order to lead Christ's followers astray. They want us to question the truth of what we believe and so entice us in a different direction and toward a different end. And this is a trial that I think every one of us will be subject to at some point in our lives if we haven't been already. The trial of being persuaded that the gospel is insufficient, that there is something better or more attractive than the word of God. In this chapter, the shouty and at times somewhat aggressive 
Peter encourages us to be alert, but not alarmed. He says, God sees and knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And he will rescue us from this one. So why don't I pray for us that we might not miss this message? Would you bow your heads? Lord, if what we are looking at tonight carries with it a warning, then help us, we pray, to, be, to pay careful attention. Clear our minds and help us to fix all our attention on you. We ask that you would make us obedient to what we hear, to better know how to apply what we learn to our lives, that we might bring you the glory and honour that you rightly deserve. Amen. Well, last week, we saw that in this letter, Peter is keen to remind his readers of the truth of the gospel so that they might be confident in what they have come to believe. In chapter 1, verse 12, he makes clear, even as his death draws near, that his single-minded intention is to remind his readers about the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done for them. Chapter 1 is without question compelling and urgent also. But in chapter 2, Peter changes gears. His tact and tone become quite a bit more dramatic. Having written about what is true, he now goes to great lengths and he pulls no punches to bring to light all that is false. Specifically, the false teaching that has the potential to wreak havoc amongst God's people. Read with me from verse 1. But false prophets also arose from among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with their words, their false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Well, there are three things that we learn about these false teachers from these verses. Firstly, and most obviously, is that they actually exist. There have been false teachers, past tense, and there will be false teachers, future tense. Don't be surprised, Peter says, and don't be naive. There is certainty around the fact that there will be false teachers and that many will follow them. Secondly, and what is perhaps uh, most alarming is what we learn about where these false teachers come from. Did you notice? There will be false teachers among you. These false teachers come from within God's family, from amongst us. This means we cannot simply discount this matter as being about some kind of new age person, religious person, who's out there. Because Peter says that these people are within the local church. 
They come from amongst us. And thirdly, these false teachers are frustratingly difficult to spot. They preach destructive heresies that they bring in in secret. They're deceptive in their message and they entice unsteady souls. Well, Peter's concern, it's not new. Jesus himself has warned about these people and his language was actually similarly very stern. Turn with me, if you've got your Bible handy, to Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Uh, As we're looking at this passage, we need to remember that this is uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. uh, And what we find is that he actually talks about these false prophets. Let's read it together. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Peter's concern comes as he recognises these false teachers to be the wolves that Jesus has described here. For all intents and purposes, they appear as one of us. They will act like us. They will pray like us. They will sing the same songs as us. They will know the right things to say to us. But inwardly, they are ravenous and seek to destroy us. So then if these people are so conniving, so deceptive, so secretive, what chance do we have to recognise them? What chance is there for a sheep against a wolf? Well, there's none. But God promises to rescue the godly from their trials and he gives us help. Look again at Matthew chapter 17, this time at verse 16. You will recognise them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognise them by their fruits. These false teachers can be seen by the type of fruit that they produce. And just as Caitlin pointed out last week that real Christians can be seen from the fruit that they produce, Jesus here says that fake Christians can be seen for their fruit too. The test to determining a real or a counterfeit Christian is the same. We recognise them by their fruit. A sheep might not be able to fight off a wolf, but God in his grace gives us the ability to see them for who they really are as we identify the kind of fruit they produce and how it looks different from the fruit of a true believer. And as we turn back to 2 Peter chapter 2, this is exactly what we see Peter doing here. He contrasts the fruit of the righteous that we looked at last week with the fruit of the unrighteous. He points out exactly the type of fruit that these false teachers produce and where that fruit comes from. In verses 10 to 19, Peter contrasts the fruit of the false teacher 
with the fruit of the righteous person. This is what he says. He says, where the righteous are self-controlled, the unrighteous are arrogant and greedy. And if the righteous are steadfast, the unrighteous are like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. The righteous are seen for their godliness, but the unrighteous are bold and willful and they don't tremble as they blaspheme God's people. And the righteous are renowned for love, but the unrighteous indulge in the lust of defiling passion. Peter says, these false teachers are blots and blemishes that revel. That is, they throw a party and celebrate their deceptions and you are their main course. Take note. Peter wants us as God's sheep to be on the lookout to identify these wolves so that we are not deceived by the work of false teachers. Can you say that you are vigilantly looking as Peter asks you to? Or are you naive and in a position where you'll be tempted to take that fruit and eat it? Well, Peter says, don't be naive. They are in our midst. Watch out. Well, now, if this is the fruit that the false teachers produce, where does it come from? What kind of conditions does it need to grow? It comes from a perverted message. Unsurprisingly, false teachers preach a false message. Peter has already explained to us in chapter 1, verse 16, that the gospel was not some sort of made-up story. It wasn't a cleverly invented piece of writing that we've bought into. But it's something that the Old Testament prophets pointed to, and it's something that he has seen firsthand, that he is prepared to give an eyewitness account of. But here he highlights that the message of the false teachers is preached in their greed. Look with me at verse 3. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. The NIV puts it quite literally, they will, they will exploit you with fabricated stories. Um, I attended a church once uh, where the senior minister preached for 45 minutes about God dust and dinosaurs. Yeah, we laugh because God dust and dinosaurs aren't in the Bible, are they? Which is exactly why when I left, I felt furious because what that preacher was doing was preaching a fabricated story, a nonsense. And what's worse was that people were hanging off his every word despite the unfounded biblical basis of what he was saying. God's sheep need gentle tending. And in my opinion, that pastor was leading them straight towards wolves. Peter says that the true teacher credits what he says from the Bible, but the false teacher makes up his own message 
And he doesn't do it for the good of God's people, but he does it for the good of his own selfish gain. We've already seen the lengths that Peter has gone in order to explain how Jesus Christ is central to the truth of the gospel. He says in chapter 1, verse 3, we have everything we need for life and godliness in him. But here, at the very start of chapter 2, we see that the false teachers actively deny Jesus. He is not central to their message. He's maybe an afterthought. He might be peripheral at best. In fact, the false teachers go so far as to outright deny the sovereign Lord who bought them. Look with me again at verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. If what Peter is saying here when he says that they have at one time been bought by the Lord, then this is seriously a very, very, very bad thing because it means that these false teachers have initially accepted the gospel only to then use it for their own selfish gain. Those who are responsible for caring for the sheep and leading them to the one true shepherd are instead leading them away and towards certain destruction. And Peter has no time for them, going so far as to describe them as he does at the end of the chapter as being dogs who return to their vomit and pigs who return to their filth. But notice also in verse 1 the word secretly. It's rare for somebody in the church to openly deny Jesus. Movement away from the centrality of Christ is a subtle thing. But when we pay attention, we see it for what it really is. And surely I'm not alone in having witnessed people who once followed Jesus quietly start to push back on the gospel. Their attitudes and behaviours expose the arrogance of their heart. They post pictures or stories on social media and they have conversations with us that just don't quite sit right because they inform us that their worship of their heart is misplaced. They are no longer following the truth and they desperately want us to go the same way. Peter helpfully describes what they are actually doing in verses 18 and 19. Have a look with me. At verse 18, for speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. The false teachers ask, what do people want to hear? What will make them happy? How can I make this message more appealing, more attractive, more palatable to them? Is there some way that this can be a little bit less offensive? And then they promise them freedom. But the irony is, is that they themselves are slaves and they're slaves to their own teaching. And Peter goes on to say that it would be better for them to have never known the truth because what they're doing is so damaging and so devastating. 
So if the damage and devastation of these false teachers is so catastrophic, what hope do we have? Look with me at verse 9 and 10. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Amongst all the alarm, amongst all the warning and unsettling, Peter takes time to reassure us, and probably himself for that matter, that God knows perfectly well how to deal with these kind of people. Remember Noah, he says? Remember Lot? The Lord sees and the Lord knows, so don't be dismayed. Let's just read verse 9 again and let Peter's encouragement sink in for a moment. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Here, Peter is like an anxious parent. He's desperate for his children, worrying about how they're going to manage when he's not there to point them in the right direction, to tell them what to do. He's worried about these believers. He knows full well the greed and exploitation of these false teachers, how they will do anything to lead God's people astray. But he takes comfort to remember that those who belong to the Lord are also protected by him. And so we can too. You can take comfort knowing that God sees and knows about the people you love who have wandered away from him, the people you know who have been tempted by the world and enticed by its message. And we can take comfort knowing our God sees and knows our heart. He knows how prone we are to stray from him. He knows that we doubt him and his promises to care for us. He sees and he knows. And you might be sitting here tonight wondering if following Jesus is actually even worth it. Perhaps living for him right now just feels a bit hard, don't really want to keep going. You'd actually really just like to live for yourself, throw it all in. And if this is you, then may this be an encouragement to you. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So we might not know the future, but he does. I'm certain that Noah and Lot would not have said that trusting God in the midst of their circumstances was particularly easy. I mean... It takes Matt what feels like an eternity to renovate our house. And so imagine poor Noah, who didn't have Makita batteries. <laughs> I mean, that's a really long time of people laughing at him and mocking him, making snide remarks about how stupid he was for following God. And yet, God 
was faithful, acting at just the right time. He knows how to rescue the godly from trials. So take heart because he always keeps his promises. Well then, it's all well and good that Peter is pent up by righteous anger towards these false teachers. But what does it mean for us? How do we heed his warning? Because surely we're not going to fall? Many, Peter says in verse 2, many will follow their sensuality. Many. But why? Why do so many people follow the false teachers? Because they want what they offer. Their message is real appealing. It sounds good. And herein lies Peter's concern. We are all tempted to buy into the lie that is held out for us when God's word is twisted. It's at the very heart of our sinful nature. Did God really say? Did he really The voice of Satan is no different today than it was for Adam and Eve back in the garden. The reality is, and what we still find so hard to accept, is that walking God's way, holding fast to his truth, is not easy. Just turn back to Matthew chapter 7, the passage that we looked at earlier. But this time we're going to have a look at verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus says to us, his way is through a narrow gate and it's hard. It's hard. I don't know when or why or how, but somewhere along the lines, we have confused these two ways. And we've bought the lie that following Jesus is just like some gentle stroll and it's going to be easy. But this was never what was promised to us. Nowhere in the Bible do we see that following Jesus will be easy. It's simply not in here. I mean, we can just take a moment, right, and reflect on the fact that Peter, who's writing these words to us in 2 Peter, he's sitting waiting to be executed for his faith for following Jesus. Following Jesus means surrendering to his way sacrificing your life to him. It is painful and difficult and costly. Not long after finishing high school, uh, a close friend of mine died. We were 24 and life was just really getting started and looking pretty good. And I can remember still to this day sobbing as I left that funeral, so 
angry at God for the reality of the gospel, that easy path, that wide gate, it looked really appealing. It would have been so much easier for me to have been able to say, she was just a kind person, she was pretty good, God will definitely welcome her into heaven. But accepting the reality of the gospel, it's hard. In fact, it's not just hard, it's painful. And yet Jesus tells us, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard. That leads to life. But those who find it are few. Peter wants to warn us because he does not want us to be surprised that there are others out there who would have us join them on that easy path, especially, especially when they've tried Jesus' way and realised that it was hard. Because Jesus' way is a way that is painful and difficult and costly. Peter himself knows this to be true. He's sitting waiting to be executed. And so he reminds us. But what's more is that he reminds us of Jesus in whose footsteps we follow. In his first letter to these people that he's writing to, in chapter 1, verse 24, he reminds us, of Jesus saying, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Friends, not only does, does the Lord know how to rescue the godly from trials, but in Jesus, he has done everything and more that was necessary to save us not just from the trial that we face at judgment, but to rescue us from every trial that we will ever face. Let's pray. Teach us, Lord, to be people who walk cautiously along the narrow path, especially when we find it hard. Help us not to give up, but remind us that you are with us and will rescue us from every trial that we face. And please, Lord, may we be even more wise because we want your name to be glorified in our church and in our lives. Amen.